Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the 7 a.m. Novelist Passages of Summer Edition. I am Michelle Hoover, your host. We all know that the early pages of a novel or story are really difficult to get right. So this summer, we're discussing the choices that went into a range of authors' first pages in terms of scene, structure, language, etc., and how those choices might help you with your own first pages. Today, we hear from one of my favorite authors, Idra Novi, who is going to share the first pages of her latest novel, Take What You Need, which was just released this March. Good morning, Idra. Good morning, Michelle. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being on the show. Idra Novi's most recent novel, Take What You Need, was named a spring fiction pick with the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. She's also the author of Those Who Knew, a New York Times editor's choice, and a best book of the year in over a dozen media outlets. Her first novel, Ways to Disappear, was a finalist for the LA Times Book Prize for First Fiction. She's also the author of three poetry collections and several highly awarded works of translation. She is the recipient of awards from the National Endowment National Endowments for the Arts. Idra, you've done so much, I actually get tongue-tied reading the bio. <laughs> no need, no need. Also, Poets and Writers Magazine. There's still more. The Penn Translation Fund and the Poetry Foundation. She teaches fiction at Princeton. Um, okay, Idra, I'm going to shut up and let you go. I want to, can you give us a quick overview of, of the novel so that we have some context for these first pages? Well, the novel has uh, two narrators, and one of them is the stepdaughter who is um, writing in the present tense, and she's traveling from Long Island City back to the Southern Allegheny Highlands, which is where I grew up. And then the older narrator, Jean, is um, writing in the is sort of in the past tense, a few years earlier in the Allegheny Highlands um, in Western Pennsylvania. So it, it alternates between sort of the stepdaughter and um, Jean, who's the artist in the novel, and they've been estranged for several years. So when the novel starts taking place, um, I'll read the first section, and that's in the voice of Leah, who's driving back to Appalachia, and she is has you know has just found out um, that Jean has died, her former stepbrother, they haven't been speaking, and she is traveling back. And then we'll talk later with Michelle about how difficult it was to create <laughs> the beginning of this novel. Yeah, this so she's morning, gonna read, I, yeah. go, go for it. Um, I'm okay. just gonna say, I was gonna say she, um, so she's guys, she's gonna read the first two pages of the very first chapter and then the first two pages of the second chapter so that we get um, a look at the two different points of views. And then you guys, you're gonna hear the difference between these points of views, uh, which can be very hard to get right because they're both first person points of views. All right, Idra. Yes, and I, I had to come up with tricks to do that. But yes, they're both written in the first person. It's in this a dual narration that moves between them. So this is the first one is the younger narrator, Leah. This morning I read that repeating the name of the deceased can quiet the mind when grieving for a complicated person. My stepmother, Jean, was a complicated person. I've been reading all kinds of advice since hearing of her death. I didn't know that she'd begun to weld metal towers in her living room, towers so tall she needed a ladder to complete them. Apparently, that's how she died, slipping from one of her ladder's highest rungs. Jean never left the town where she was born and where I was also born and where she became the closest version of a mother I've known. It's a town in the southern Allegheny Mountains, which have been sinking for millions of years and resemble rolling hills now more than mountains. I know uttering Jean's name won't quiet my mind any more than saying the word mountain will stop these hills from sinking further. My use of the word stepmother, while soothing, 
is wishful thinking too. Jean left my father when I was 10 and hasn't technically been my stepmother for decades. I've gone through phases of calling her up, seeking her contrarian take on things. Just as often it's felt saner to stop all contact. In the past four years, we've had none. Despite this prolonged recent silence, she left her towers to me. I received the news from a man named Elliot who claims he'd been living with Jean for some time. I'll stop there. Okay. It gives you a sense of Leah's return and her lack of information heading back. Um, and this is Jean several years earlier before her death um, in her house. I'd had it with the new mailman. He kept peering in at me through the screen door like I was up to something indecent, sculpting cocks like Louise Bourgeois. I didn't have the forging equipment to weld anything cock-shaped. I was no Louise either. I was just trying to master the nature of a box. Everything I made was flat and six-sided, and I didn't need the new mailman snickering any of it. I also couldn't keep the front door shut, not once the metal got molten enough to start releasing its fumes, and the argon gas from the TIG torch was doing its inert magic to the air. I tried to take the high road at first. I said, please, and called the new mailman by the name on his uniform. I said, Kenny, could you please just leave the mail on the front steps, even if it's pouring? I told him I didn't care if my bills got soggy. Kenny said, sure, then went on doing exactly what I asked him not to, creeping up to the screen door to spy on me. When he got here yesterday, I was sawing the heads off a new batch of spoons. I used the spoon heads for the capsules I started brazing onto my boxes to add a few lumps of surprise to the sides. I placed my hand on the knob, waiting for her to back up so I could push the door open and speak to her without the grimy screen between us. She didn't step back, though, which was fine with me. I left the screen door closed. Why her water bill had gone unpaid wasn't any of my business. Same as my life wasn't any business of hers. You're more than welcome to use the spigot any time, I told her from my side of the door. Oh, do you know what? I think I just skipped a page. Oh. Oh, that's what I did. But you know what? It's okay. That's okay. Let's just go with it. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. people can hear. Yeah. Um, and then people will just have to read the book. <laughs> yes. They were stuck <laughs> together. It's getting humid here in mid-May. Um, just um, saying to the woman who came to the door, who was her, her uh, yeah, I was like, wait a minute. I didn't even introduce who was at the door. This is what happens when you know you read those first pages a zillion times. I'll go back just one second. This is what Jean's yeah. saying about um, her arts. She in her spoons that she puts on her art. I knew who at the flea market tended to have silver spoons. The silver ones were far softer to saw through than stainless steel. The real fun, though, was choosing where to play, what to place inside the spoon heads before I welded the capsule shut. I sealed all sorts of things inside. Bits of photo, buds of pine cones, whatever. I damn well pleased. <laughs> yes. Um, and you actually read those differently, not just because the void. You actually read Jean faster. Yes, I think I did probably. Yeah, which is which is interesting. I mean, it's it. I think it's part of how you hear her voice. Um, yeah. So I I think that's really okay. Let's look at those first two pages with Leah. Well, first of all, we were these originally your first pages? No. Oh my goodness, I read <laughs> these pages so many times. I mean, I really had to think and I think you know it helped that I had translated a lots of other writers because when you translate you have to think well what is happening on the sentence level that conveys the sensibility of the speaker and so I've done that a lot of trying to be like well how do I convey the sensibility of Clarice Lispector how do I convey the sensibility you know Manuel de Bajos writing from the swamplands of Brazil or whatever I was translating and so I feel like I bring that to 
doing the, 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 the sensibility of narrators and fiction. I love doing multiple points of view. And in some ways, I think that translation was a great apprenticeship for that. Because mm -hmm. I think that then I can think, well, how in the order of the words, the words that I choose or the cadence of the sentence, can I convey that speaker's um, sensibility and their voice? And so I thought of Leah in the opening section, which I think I read sort of slowly more carefully because she's sort of more contained. She mm -hmm. lives in the city, you know, she, she, you know, she lives in the New York area where you all day long are like, excuse me, pardon me. You self-correct. You're aware you have to choose the right word for the right thing. You have to just be aware, step around people on the subway, step around people on the sidewalk, but just other, you're always literally bumping into other lives. And so mm -hmm. she's very self-correcting. She's very careful with what she says. And Jean goes for days without seeing anyone. And right. so there's like a, there's like a, she's un, less, less inhibited. I think, you know, I think in some ways we do think of urban people maybe as less inhibited in certain ways, which is true, but also I think you end up being more inhibited in other ways when you're around lots of people and Jean, cause she's, you know, brave enough to sort of be herself in, in isolation. She is, she doesn't self-correct at all. So I was trying to think of writing those sentences and also, you know, I grew up and I, um, you know, speaking sort of like a Northern Appalachian dialect which I don't want to put on too hard when I'm reading it out loud, but I really mm -hmm. hear the way people speak where I grew up and, and when I was writing Jean's voice and sort of that cadence, which Leah doesn't have either. Right, right. I mean, we can see Leah's carefulness just in those first two sentences. This morning, I read that repeating the name of the deceased can quiet the mind when grieving for a complicated person. My yeah. stepmother, Jean, was a complicated person. Like, that is very careful in terms of um, laying judgment on a person, what she's saying about a person. Um, and the repetition is, is, is just very careful doling out her words. And then we get by the end of that first paragraph, um, I've been reading all kinds of advice since hearing of her death. I didn't know that she'd begun to weld metal towers in her living room towers so tall she needed a ladder to complete them. Apparently that's how she died slipping from one of her ladder's highest rungs. That first paragraph contains a lot of the story yes <laughs> and we actually when we go into Jean's point of view we actually have to catch up to that um yes. and and what is interesting that you do is that there's an early accident that Jean undergoes and I almost I was like wait was this was this how she died so I was already oh. caught up uh, I was already and then I went back I'm like no that's not how. so um so you, you you play with us a little bit there which I thought was interesting but you basically give us you, you forecast a lot of the plot that we're going to see. Um, and then we need to have Leah catch up with it. Um, so much of this, now, did you always start with Leah? Um, it's a good question. I, I tried both, but I, it felt like in some ways, Leah was is the narrator, because there's an element, I don't want to give it too much away, where she's sort of crafting a story. And so there's like a metafictional aspect to the book. And several people have commented on, I didn't even think that I was doing anything sort of structurally experimental in the fact that the two narrations are not even moving in the same way, that one of them is sort of in the present, as you said, Michelle, which is what she's catching up to the past. That mm -hmm. although her narration should have the immediacy of the present, that in the present, she's urgently, urgently trying to catch up to the past. Whereas Jean in the past isn't trying to catch up with anything, you know? So in some ways, Jean is very much in the moment. And then Leah's in the present trying to make sense of, you know, the place that she's driving toward and what she'll find when she gets there. And this young man who, um, you know, is, 
is now living in, in Jean's house. It was the son of the woman who um, is in that first chapter I was reading. So, so I, I think when I was trying to figure out who was going to go first, it was sort of figuring out um, who was going to be in the present tense. Cause I knew I wanted one of them in the present tense mm-hmm. and it made sense that it would be Leah. Mm-hmm. And so notice then we've got these two basically parallel timelines with the two okay. parallel um, voices and they're both moving forward. Um, and, and, and uh, so she has, you have to make choices about when you, how, how long you spend in one versus how long you spend in other, as you were writing the book, did that come naturally to you? going back and forth or did you have to kind of move things around a lot and constantly adjust? You know, I never studied fiction formally in an MFA program. I studied poetry and, and I came to fiction from poetry. So if there was like some sort of memo about chapters all having to be the same length, I didn't get it. I don't want the memo, you know? And so anyway, yeah. I, think I, I think I just sort of tried to let the chapters be the, the sections really to be, you know, the organic length that they needed to be. And if sometimes Leah's was longer or sometimes Jean's was longer, I was like, it doesn't really matter. I'm not cutting slices of pie. I'm writing a novel. And so I just wanted to stay true <laughs> to what that section needed to do. And I think also coming from poetry, I'm very, have a very sort of like image driven sense or sensory driven sense of scenes. So Mm -hmm. I would just sort of try and stay in the scene. And when the scene was over, the scene was over. I really had a, had this sort of like thought writing this book that I did not want to put in any rhetoric. I didn't want to put in a lot of exposition. You know, I was, I was reading Claire Keegan. I was reading who's writing, I think is also written about a rural place she's writing about Ireland, yep. but that is a very polarized country, similar to the polarized landscape in America that I was writing about in this novel. Mm-hmm. And I think what I needed to do is I think Claire Keegan does so well as her scenes are really clean. You know, um, I don't know if you've read um, Foster, but like, you know, if yep. you, small things like this. Uh, yes, it's just, she just, through the dialogue and through the sensory experiences of the characters, you just inhabit where they are and she doesn't comment. And so that's what I tried to do with this book. And so I didn't want the chapters to sort of become longer because I was trying to sort of convey to the reader what they should take away. I wanted the scenes to just speak for themselves, I guess. Yeah. When it seems to naturally happen that, okay, we've got Leah begins, but even her beginning is primarily about Jean. I mean, she's looking Mm -hmm. away from herself. Um, And I don't know if she's very comfortable with pointing that attention back to herself. Uh, but she's constantly looking away. And then we do get quite a lot of Jean's chapters in a row. So I, I just thought it was an interesting way to begin that the, the focus really, at least to, in the beginning chapter, seems to be Jean. Um, yes. And I think she's reeling, you know, she's like, well, who did I lose? I mean, I think that's, you know, one in four people in this country is estranged from a close relative. Um, yeah. So I, once I came across that, I was just, you know, thinking a lot about estrangement and rural and urban sort of tensions. Well, what is the psychic toll if you are estranged from someone and then you lose them? You don't actually, you know, you don't know who you lost because you don't know who they became in the years that, you know, that that the relationship sort of was on reached an impasse. So that was really the larger question. And so I think Leah is, and you know, in some ways, is the narrator of you know going back and looking at these anecdotes, these vignettes from Jean's life at the beginning, that opening chapter, is she doesn't she sort of like doesn't know who to mourn because she cannot she doesn't know what Jean's life entailed at the end. Mm-hmm. And she kind of mimics you writing this book. I mean, you have not yes. written 
<laughs> um, about this place, this this place where your roots are from, um, at least in your previous two novels. Um, so this is kind of your your journey back home. <laughs> exactly. Have yes. Been. Yeah. I made the drive that Leah makes in the novel. I made that drive so many times. It's like seven hours and seven hours. And so I just sit there in the car, but there, there is a way where you're like, well, you're moving away from something chosen back to something that, you know, nobody chooses where they're born. Nobody chooses, mm -hmm. you know, who raises them, you know? And so to go back to those things that aren't chosen, those people, it, it, it's, um, I've done that drive. <laughs> so this novel was very much about sort of thinking about what that means. Um, Yes. Yeah. It, 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 it is tricky too, because Leah's not me, you know, like yeah. yes. I may have, I may have some similarities with her, but she is definitely a younger person and, you know, sort of the recent events in this country hit her life at a very different time than. Yeah. Than well, and then, so you also talk about the metafictional elements and I noticed the sentence, um, it comes in this first chapter. She says, I work all day with words, revise them, read, excuse me, revising them in multiple languages before they move on to websites. And yet these past four years, I haven't been able to move even a single sentence in Jean's direction <laughs> until now. <laughs> I mean, she doesn't yeah. say that, but that's basically what she's doing. She's moving her whole self in that direction. Um, and I just thought that was a, a lovely way of approaching um, that idea. Um, and then she's also traveling with her husband and child. Did you have them in, that's an, it adds a lot of tension by having them in the car with her. Um, was that a choice that you made right away um, or did you add them later? Well, I mean, my own family is bilingual and we speak Spanish at home. So I have had a lot of experience, you know, driving back to Appalachia and speaking Spanish at um, restaurants or pizza, pizzerias or gas stations. And most times people are, are sort of surprised to hear Spanish, but are usually curious and, you know, welcoming, but not always. <laughs> so I this this book became sort of this opportunity to sort of think about this sort of anticipation of not knowing how speaking a language other than English will go and, and, you know, world places where that, that isn't something that people hear that often. Um, so I, yeah, I mean, there are aspects of my life that I've wanted to write about, but I, you know, I just feel like I've been circling those mountains for a long time in other books. And, um, you know, my last novel was in an invented country <laughs> in part right. because I think it's kind of like an amalgam. Those who knew was like this island nation that's sort of an amalgam of Chile, where I've been traveling back and forth for 20 years and Appalachia, which because the towns where in the Southern Aglaia Highlands are like islands, you know, mm -hmm. there's these islands in these valleys and it's not easy to get there and it's not easy to, to, to come back in or out. So in some ways they are kind of like an archipelago, the, all the airports there, as I talked about in the novel, you know, all those small airports, most of them are gone. So getting in and out of there is basically you need, you know, it's a long drive or it's, you know, a, a helicopter. I mean, you can't really get in or out. Yeah. But at adding those characters in just allows you to bring in other viewpoints. Um, and yeah. that other part of the story, um, so that it, it just gave you some flexibility, I think, um, which I thought was interesting. And then you didn't get to read this part in the first chapter, but this for me encapsulated, when, when I read this part, I was so, I, I fell for Jean in this part. And then I fell for the relationship and I became, I started to mourn the relationship. And so the, the lines are each time I say Jean's name to myself. So again, notice that Idra is picking off on um, rhythms of language that she's already created as she moves forward. And it gives her 
her content. Um, so I'd always think about that as you're writing, of thinking about circling back as you travel forward. So she writes, each time I say Jean's name to myself, I hear her louder still, the rising pleasure in her voice when she read me fairy tales, stopping to insist that she wasn't like the stepmother in Snow White, that she had no craving for my liver or my lungs. All I want is to nibble your heart, Leah, she'd tell me. You don't, you don't mind if I eat your heart sometimes, right? Just one of your ventricles? I just, I was, I, at that point, I was in. I just... And I, 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 again, I was in mourning for the relationship with that, oh, even though it's a you. little bit, I mean, it could be like kind of creepy and scary, but, but I was in there. And then well, and it's, it's, it's like a dark humor. I think, you know, yes. it's a sort of a stark environment they're in and Jean takes risks in her art and also in her humor. And I think that often we, we sort of maybe underestimate how important that is that when you can, you know, say something that's like a slightly creepy joke about, you know, eating your, the child you're raising, eating her, the ventricles of her heart. Mm -hmm. But that's also kind of what lets her to sort of like, you know, try and, you know, make these boxes and compare herself to Louise Bourgeois, you know, cocks, you know, hanging these cocks as big as boxing bags, which Louise Bourgeois did. And Louise Bourgeois had a very creepy sense of humor, a very yeah. dark sense of humor. <laughs> I yes. spent a lot of time reading Louise Bourgeois writing while I was um, oh. working on this novel because Jean sips her nightly Louise, you know, in bed each night mm -hmm. in the novel. And so I got to sit, sip my nightly Louise, which was such a pleasure. Um, and, and I was like, oh, Louise. I mean, whenever she had interviews, she really, you know, she, she took some really like um, sly risks and the jokes she made. Yeah, wonderful. Um, and then the end of the chapter, the first chapter ends with this wonderful image. Well, it's not wonderful, but it's wonderfully done. I assure him, so they, they get stuck behind this old truck and they have to go much slower as they're approaching this uh, town where she was born. And she's assuring her son um, in the backseat, I assure him this old truck with its rattling plastic tubes won't remain ahead of us forever. <laughs> and it just speaks load about, we're not gonna be stuck in this place forever. We're not gonna be stuck in this. <laughs> Uh, we're not going to be slowed down forever. We're not going to be held back forever. You know, um, you're not going to have to deal with this forever in your life the way I have. Um, and uh, I don't know if she's right with about that, but. I loved how it's so validating to hear that you really got, because I, I really tried to comb out any sense of some hand wringing or anything strident or anything where there's like, you know, Leah's, you know, sort of feeling like she's sort of, trying to make sense of this region as sort of like a larger, more abstract sense to just stay in the scene, stay in the car with her child, with the apples, with her husband, with the truck in front of her and have all of that be tacit or implicit, you know, um, but not make it um, some sort of like rhetorical thing, because I, I think that's not what fiction should do. I think you just mm -hmm. want to place people especially at the beginning of a novel and those opening pages with a person and a relationship so that, you know, it was, it's wonderful to hear that you sort of mourned for that lost relationship, that when you got a sense of their banter about fairy tales together and they're sort of like, you know, creepy jokes that they might make about, you know, Jean wanting to eat um, <laughs> Leah's ventricles and Leah saying, you can eat all of me if you're hungry enough, you know, like you do get a sense of who they were to each other, you know, in bed at night reading, because I think that is who we are, you know, yeah. what, what kind of jokes do you make in your pajamas? you know like, yeah right exactly <laughs> and then moving to Jean um now did you 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 said you always knew that you wanted to have two person first person points of view yes yes, yes. 
Um, and was it, could you always hear the difference between them? Um, or was it difficult for you to parse that out? It seemed, I, these, the, the differences in the voices are very, very strong. So I, I, I can't imagine that you had, I could just imagine that you heard them immediately and just flew with it. Well, I think there's something inherently democratic about multiple points of view because mm -hmm. each character has their blind spots. And right. so when you are hearing characters, you sort of see what the impact is of one character's blind spots on the other. And this is definitely about blind spots, you know, and living in sort of, you know, places where, you know, you, you can have compassion. Your one kind of compassion or mercy comes more quickly to you than other kinds of compassion or mercy. So I wanted to write about that, but sort of through through these scenes themselves. And so I um, had found a friend, sort of late in life, cherished friend in my hometown who took me to flea markets where I could sort of simulate the art that Jean bought and the things that she got in her like early morning drives to flea markets and seeking the pieces that she ended up incorporating for her capsules and for her sculptures. And I recorded this friend that I made, Helen Galubich, who's an artist in the car and she is just wisecracking fearless um just pursue her beauty on her own terms and um I just could hear her voice and I think in some ways she's not Jean but something about her energy her passion for art and for life and her her just like she just doesn't need anyone's approval she doesn't yeah. want it and I found that I, I craved it. And when I finished writing this book, I kind of like, I missed the company. <laughs> I missed your company and I missed the company of Jean in a way. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I just, again, Jean is just such an amazing character. And Elliot, the young man that um, helps her, are just, just incredible characters. So as we move into Jean, it's interesting the different registers of language that she's able to use. Um, you start off with, I had it with the new mailman, which is kind of a colloquial uh, way of saying I'm, you know, I'm angry with him. And then he kept peering in at me through the screen door like I was up to something indecent. So the word peering and indecent feels a little bit more elevated. And so does sculpting. But then we have the drop of cocks. <laughs> yeah. um, and then we have, I was no Louise either. So she really has a broad range. She just has fun with language. She just seems to go where she wants to go. Um, and that allows you to do all sorts of things with her character, to, to be crass and open and in, uninhibited and, and yet have be reading Louise every night. Yes. I love that. I, there's something that does feel transgressive about that in some ways, you know, where, you know, I can go and, you know, in a sentence, make both of those things happen, as you say. And I do think that if you're paying attention to language and register, as you sort of eloquently said, that that is something that can happen in a book and in life too. Like I love if I'm telling a story and then you just like take a risk and say something unexpected or maybe do something say something, you know, that is a little more colloquial or crass than, than the rest of the story that that juxtaposition, I think um, just makes you as a speaker or the reader or the audience just aware of, of yeah. register and, and taking risks with what one says and, and what kind of language feels expected and what kind of language feels unexpected. And um, I think Jean sees that there is an element of transgression, you know, that she's not supposed to as a woman in her 60s to be talking about, you know, sculptures that are, you know, cocks big, big as boxing bags. But she has like a very, um, you know, uh, appetite for thinking about language and, you um, how she calls Elliot sometimes Hoonslow by his last name, depending right. on what kind of, um, you know, rapport she wants to have with him in the book. And I do think it's helpful because 
you introduce those different registers right away. So we know that she's capable of it and we can just and we can just go with it instead of being surprised later and be like and being thinking like, oh, Idra's losing her voice here. <laughs> um, right. Instead, we know that Jean is going to contain um, all of those different levels right away. And then and then we can just travel forward with that. And, and you basically have the, that those tools in your toolbox as you continue forward. Um, Whereas Leah doesn't well. like I think for right. Leah's character, she is inhibited. She's constantly. Yeah correcting she's sort of terrified of using the wrong word and that's sort of why she says she can't write that she can work as an editor because I think her instinct is to edit is to correct it is not to let it rip you know like, yeah. and I think jeans you know which I relate to more is sort of like take a risk or take a seat you know like right. do something unexpected or just sit down you know when it evens them out because Jean in many ways is stuck in place. She doesn't have nearly as many choices as Leah does. And yet her persona is much more free than Leah's who was able to leave and who has a lot more choices because of her education level. I'm assuming she um, has more money <laughs> than Jane. Um, I'm assuming she just has those opportunities. So it's a really interesting way to look at um, what is what does freedom really mean in terms of of who we are and where we go? Um, and there's one line I'm going to have to let you go soon, but there's one line that I just love that really hit me. And this is Jean later in her chapter. It actually might have been a chapter further in. Um, I just I'm in Cyprus now, folks, so I had to have her book shipped to me. Um, so I've been finally got a copy of it. Um, and anyway, so uh, Jean says about art. She says, although what if deep down where art should be, there was just a fearful homebody, just a nervous tinkerer. And so she's doubting herself and doubting what art can and should be and darting what she can do. But for some reason that really hit me because I just thought, oh God, aren't we all just fearful homebodies? Aren't we all just nervous tinkers trying to do this thing, trying to build towers <laughs> yeah. that no one understands, that no one understands. Um, okay. Everyone, I'm gonna to need to get you back to your writing desk. So we're gonna to have to let Idra go. Um, you can find our full schedule on the Substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com. Subscribe there for updates. You can also find our full range of podcast episodes on that page, including episodes from our first two writing challenges. We did a 50-day challenge in the fall and a 31-day challenge in March. And we have tons of writers and thinkers um, talking about writing uh, during those writing challenges. So you can learn a lot if you look back. You can find them on Substack or any of your favorite podcast platforms. And if you like what we're doing, please follow, rate, and review our podcast so we can reach other listeners. Okay, one last question, Idra. What advice would you give to authors about their own first pages? I would say that your first page can be provisional yeah. and that you can come up with the first page and maybe it'll move later on and maybe it will fall away. But what I think is important to achieve on that first page is what we've been talking about. And you had such great questions, Michelle, which is how do you inhabit a voice? How do you figure out whether they take risks with register? Yeah. Do they risk being crass? Do they have a sense of humor? Are they inhibited? Or, you know, what, how can you convey the sensibility of that voice? What cadence will capture this character and will speak to their blind spots because characters blind spots very much impact, you know, what kind of what's going to unfold in the novel. 
you know, and um, not only what the character knows, but what don't they know about what they don't know? (laughs) And I think that like, we often talk about write what you know, but I was like, well, what do you know about what you don't know? It's almost (laughs) the opposite. You kind of have to write in, like I was writing about where I grew up, but I haven't lived there in a long time. So I was like, okay, so this is a place I used to know, but now how do I find out what I have ceased to know? And sort of writing into a sense of uncertainty about your own knowledge about that character or about a place. And so I think that that can be what can happen on the first page, at least for a number of drafts, which is just figuring out what the larger questions are for that character, what it is that they, what are they moving towards over in this book that you're writing and how are they moving towards it with what voice? And I think once you get that, you figured out, you know, what their sense of humor is, what, you know, what kind of risks they take in their own mind, what kind of risks they take in their interactions with others, what they observe, what they're fearful to see. I think that's what first pages can do. And then as it goes, you know, I mean, this book is probably was, is 250 pages now. I think I probably wrote a thousand. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. (laughs) I just kept peeling away and peeling away. So Mm -hmm. I would say that, you know, to just remember that first page can be provisional, but what it's doing is you're, you're trying to capture on the page, a sensibility for a character who um, you want to really spend a lot of time with, because it's a big tower to build. As you said, Michelle, you know, a novel is quite a tower. It's quite, and it's a crazy tower that no one, no one else understands. So I also love that right into your own uncertainty, allowing that to exist as you begin a novel and allowing that hopefully to even excite you as you begin a novel. I don't know everything yet. I don't know what I'm going to say. I don't know what I'm going to discover. I don't know what I'm going to explore. And then the idea that I do think blind spots are character. That's absolutely what they are. Um, Yes. Yeah. yeah. So I think we can And also that. writing, I think, with inhabiting up some place of ambivalence. Yeah. Because, you know, if you're going into it and you know exactly what's going to happen and why, I just, well, then why go there? You know, if there's no surprise for the writer, there's no surprise for the reader. So I think it's very important in those opening pages that you're just ambivalent about the place or maybe ambivalent about the character or ambivalent about something. So that that lack of resolve will keep you compelled to learn more. You know, that if if you, if you feel, if you allow for that ambivalence, which is, feels uneasy, that unease, I think then you're more likely to write with nuance. Okay. I need to get everyone back to their writing desk. Thank you so much, Idra, for joining us. I really appreciate having you on. Thank you for reading the book with such care. It's been a pleasure.